Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Today we're pressing on in our series on the prophets, and here we have for you a discussion of the first portion of Daniel chapter 5. If you've been blessed or helped by this podcast, we do invite you to leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps to expand our audience and get our teaching on Bible, liturgy, and culture to more people. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are James B. John, Peter Lightheart, and Alistair Roberts discussing Daniel chapter 5. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and James B. John. Jeff Myers, who is usually with us, is uh, away for a family event. Uh, we wish him well during that uh, during that time. And Brian Motes is, as usual, in the background, recording and making sure that all of our uh, flaws and extra noises are edited out so you can listen to a pure and clean podcast. We're in the middle of a series on prophetic literature, and specifically, we're looking at the book of Daniel. And we've gone through the first third of the book of Daniel through chapter four. Uh, and we're going to be talking about Daniel chapter five in this episode and in the following episode. So far in Daniel, we've been uh, looking at episodes in Daniel's life under the Babylonian Empire, uh, and specifically the empire of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of uh, Babylon who's mentioned right at the beginning of Daniel. He's the one who conquered Jerusalem, took the vessels from the temple, took exiles off to Babylon, and Daniel is among those who was taken off to Babylon. Uh, and up till chapter four, he's been the king with whom Daniel has been dealing. Daniel and his three friends have been dealing. Uh, and then in chapter five, we have this sudden appearance of a new king, as uh, James uh, B. John has pointed out in some of the writings he's done on uh, Daniel five. We have this very quick shift from the end of chapter four to the beginning of chapter five. Uh, in the ancient manuscripts, you don't have chapter divisions. And so you would immediately move from Nebuchadnezzar's confession at the end of chapter four, and particularly from the, the statement uh, that God is able to humble those who walk in pride. And the next words you see on the page would be Belshazzar, the king held a great bread. So you have that quick ju- juxtaposition. That's not chronologically the next thing that happens. There's a lot that happens in between uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the rise of Belshazzar. We'll talk about that in this episode, I'm sure. Uh, but the the way the text moves is from uh, a confession about the Lord humbling those who walk in pride to talking about Belshazzar, and we very quickly find that he is one of those who walk in, walks in pride, and we expect that the Lord will humble him, which uh, is what happens in chapter 5. Chapter 5 is bringing together a number of things that have happened already in chapters 1 through 4. It's kind of a cumulative we haven't talked about this much, but I, I think that we probably are looking at a cumulative narrative that each chapter is kind of building on what happened in the previous chapter. But it's really striking in chapter chapter five, where we have things from each of the previous chapters that are brought into play. Chapter five includes a reference to the vessels of the temple. Uh, and that's one of the first things that we learn in the first chapter of Daniel, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar took the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem and brought them to Babylon. So those vessels make a reappearance for the first time since chapter one. Uh, in chapter one, Daniel and his friends refuse the king's wine, and they are given a different diet. They're given water and, and seeds to eat. 
uh, and in chapter five, for the first time since chapter one, we have a reference to wine and we have the king's wine, Belshazzar's wine in this case, not Nebuchadnezzar's, but wine is back in play. Uh, chapter two was Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue and the statue that had a gold a gold head and had a silver uh, silver torso, a bronze and iron, uh, iron and clay at the bottom. And we'll see several references to that structure in Daniel five. And also Daniel, Daniel two had the, uh, the first time that the wise men of Babylon had failed to interpret something. Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. He brings his, in his wise men and his diviners, and they can't tell him what, what the dream was about. And then Daniel steps in and does what the, what the wise men can't do. That's the first time that happens in chapter two. It happens again in chapter four, and it happens one climactic time in chapter five. In chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar sets up this huge statue of gold, and then he gathers all his nobles together where they are in, a, in the plain. And they bow down to this statue. And we again have a gathering of all the nobles of a thousand nobles in the kingdom of Belshazzar here in chapter five. So that's picking up something from chapter three. The humbling of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter four is uh, when the Lord reduces him to a beast, sends him out for uh, seven periods of time from the company of men. That's actually alluded to. That story is retold in brief in uh, chapter five. So we again have that reference. So every, there are things from every one of the previous chapters that are being brought back into play in chapter five, but now in a new phase of Babylon's history, uh, the final phase of Babylon's history, where Belshazzar is presiding over Babylon as Babylon falls. Uh, as far as the chapter itself is concerned, we seem to have a, a kind of a, a basic chiastic structure. We start out with this feast of Belshazzar, where he brings out this um, brings out the vessels of the temple. Um, he's defying, uh, at least implicitly, even if he's not doing it consciously, he's defying the God of Israel. At the end of the chapter, he's honoring Daniel for Daniel's insight and being able to in- interpret the inscription that's written. During the feast, we have this, this inscription, that's the B section, and the corresponding section later in the chapter is the B prime section is Daniel reading and interpreting the inscription. Uh, the queen appears after the inscription has come, and she encourages Belshazzar to consult with Daniel. And she tells uh, uh, Belshazzar, reminds Belshazzar about Daniel's prominence during the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. And then Daniel comes in later in the in the chapter, the C prime section, and again reminds Belshazzar what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And then right at the center, we have the first initial confrontation between Daniel and Belshazzar that begins in verse, uh, verses, it's verses 13 through 16. That seems to be the center of the chapter. Daniel has come in. And Belshazzar uh, responds to his presence, and uh, we have that exchange there. So we we basic we seem to have a basic chiastic structures uh, circling around Daniel's appearance, and his uh, his intervention in this situation is what what moves things along and changes the direction. Perhaps somebody who knows the history better than I do can kind of fill in the gaps between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. I mentioned that um, there's a lot of history that takes place between the end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five. Historically, there's been a lot of dispute about the identity of Belshazzar, people denying that he existed until um, the mid-1800s when there were various um, written records referring to him that were discovered. Prior to that, there was no allusion to Belshazzar within the um, classical sources. And so, again, it's one of those situations where um, the burden of the evidence seemed to be against the biblical text from external sources, but then time proved that the biblical text was correct. And the identity of Belshazzar is a question because 
Nabonidus would seem to be the king at the time. But the term for um, Belshazzar is probably used in reference to a more specific um, role that he was playing within Babylon at the time. And so he enjoys a number of the royal prerogatives. He is serving under his father, but he's not the king in um, by himself. He's enjoying some sort of vicegerency or co-regency. Yeah, which is a remarkable fact, isn't it? The ruler at the time, Nabonidus, basically just decided to up sticks and go and live in Arabia for 10 years. It's a completely unprecedented thing in terms of kings of Babylon and even regions nearby, as, as far as I know. And um, it obviously sets the scene perfectly for what's happening in, in, in this chapter and why Belshazzar's got um, uh, got so much authority, despite the fact that he's only a, a co-regent. And um, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up the issue, Alistair, of older commentaries, because you will find some from the kind of 1800s and so on, which uh, do promote Daniel's version of events um, and, and say that the absence of evidence doesn't sort of disprove Daniel, but you get a lot who don't and say sort of Daniel's mistaken here. And I just find it really important to bear that kind of thing in, in mind because this is one of the occasions where later archaeology has sort of confirmed the biblical record. There are num- uh, numerous incidents. We thought about the Exodus in an earlier Q&A where we, we don't presently have the archaeological evidence in favour of um, of the Bible. And um, we're sort of in the gap, if, if you like. And, and um, it, it can be helpful to think of examples like this where the people who did stick with the biblical uh, story as it is and sort of held true to it were vindicated um, uh, as time went on. And um, yeah, I think that is a helpful example to bear in mind. Nabonidus um, is not the first king to follow Nebuchadnezzar, is that correct? Yeah, I think there were probably three. Um, I mean, but all of their reigns were were quite short. Uh, there was one guy who only managed a few months, um, someone who did two years, and I think someone who did four four years. So, um, yeah. yeah. Nabonidus himself is, um, is thought to have been an outsider, so he's not a descendant of um, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, so, yeah, he's, he's a sort of – he's not uh, dynastic, certainly. Yeah. So you have the situation like you have with a lot of long-term pastorates where the the pastor who's been in the same church for 35 years re- retires, and then you have a series of short-term pastors who, who don't quite live up to the uh, to the standards of the previous pastor, and uh, so they, they get turned over pretty quick. So, um, so you have a period of confusion between the end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five. And then, am I right that uh, is is it is it generally recognized that Belshazzar is the son of Nabonidus? Is that is that right? Yeah, I, I think that's quite clear. Um, we'll get to it later, won't we? Um, Daniel is quite pointed in referring to um, Belshazzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, as Belshazzar's father, which um, I think could be metaphorical you know in the sense that he's uh, the father of the babylonian kings um but i don't i don't think there's any reason to think that it couldn't be literal as well so um 
as I say, Nabonidus is an outsider. And so if he um, married one of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, descendants, you know, one of his daughters or granddaughters or, or, or whatever, it could explain how he came to the throne in the first place, which is uh, quite unusual otherwise. Um, if I recall, Herodotus says that he did marry a, a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar's. Right. So, I mean, one of the things we, we should think about, too, is the uh, the setting for this What's what verse one calls a great bread. The word for feast is bread, and we're not not told what the setting is until the very end of the chapter, until Daniel interprets the inscription that gets written on the wall. Uh, for all we know, if if we were innocent of the history behind this, we would think that Belshazzar must be the immediate successor to Nebuchadnezzar, and he's having this great feast. We don't have any sense that there's anything threatening Babylon at this point, and it's not until we get to um, the reference to the Persians, which comes in verse 28 of the chapter, that uh, we have we have a reference to some kind of threat to Babylon. Uh, and then, again, if we're innocent of the historical background, we don't realize just how imminent that threat is until we find out in verses 30 and 31 that Belshazzar was slain that same night, uh, and the Persians come in and take over Babylon. So, but... Uh, that throws a that throws a significantly different light on what's going on earlier in the chapter because if if we are just reading along we you know there are various ways we might think about the feast and what when what's going on there but uh, the fact that there's a there's a, an imminent threat to Babylon uh, I think is important uh, for setting the scene and for understanding what Belshazzar is trying to do uh, when he calls this feast for his thousand nobles. Would you say that that kind of highlights the folly of Belshazzar's? activities that there is this threat outside the gate but he's blind to it and that the chapter in not describing it is sort of highlighting his yeah his, his blindness to to it i think that might be one one angle on it the other the, i thought more in the direction that this is a i mean this is clearly a religious event his gods are there they're mentioned in verse four and then he brings out the vessels of the temple and um, the various ways that we could understand why he's doing that, but um, in the context of a uh, a religious ceremony, I mean, he's a polytheist, and if he thinks he can get some help from some god that happens to be in captivity, you know, he's got the vessels of the temple in captivity, then he's going to enlist the power of this god along with the other gods that he has. So it, it's it, it seems to me that, I mean, that it's certainly it's certainly an act of folly. Um, but it seems like it it's, could also be construed as a plea to all the gods he can possibly uh, appeal to to protect Babylon from the from the threat. They they must know that uh, that the Persians are out there. <laughs> they can't not know that the Persians are. Uh, it's, it's already under siege, right? Um, the uh, Babylon Babylon must be under siege if this if this is the night that the city is taken. So he can't he can't be ignorant of that. Uh, so. Enlisting the gods, I think the folly may be um, the you know the, the the confidence, the overconfidence, arrogance of Babylon, thinking that they can withstand any uh, any kind of threat, and they can go about their business regardless of what's happening on the outside the walls, because the walls will protect them. Hmm. Right. An issue we might like to think about here is the kind of interaction between God's timetable and man's own actions and decisions, and the way in which those two things marry up. So if you think back to chapter four for a moment, it's said in advance, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be humbled for seven times. And then 
we read towards the end of the chapter, is it verse um, 30, uh, 34, um, that at the end of the days, Nebuchadnezzar, he lifts his eyes heavenwards and it says that Nebuchadnezzar says at that point, my reason returned to me. And you could kind of wonder, you could ask the question, what has triggered the uh, return of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, reason? Is it his lifting of his eyes heavenwards? Is it kind of his plea towards God? Or is it just the fact that the seven times have now expired and sort of God's allotted time has, has elapsed? And we could ask a similar question about chapter five. Babylon is allotted exactly 70 years of dominion over the ancient Near East. And, and God says at the end of that 70 years, he will visit Babylon's sins upon her. And so you could say, well, what's going on? Is the fact that now Babylon's 70 years have come to an end? Or is it Belshazzar's um, uh, actions with the temple vessels that is kind of bringing all this down upon him? And I suggest that in both questions, you know, we, we could answer broadly, you know, yes, it's, it's both things right. happening. God can uh, determine how men will behave and God can determine when they will do certain things and therefore set a, a given uh, time to cert certain things. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of emphasis upon the action of drinking the wine and we have several references to drinking of wine as a sort of judgment. The Lord gives wine to cause the kings of the nations to reel and get drunk within Jeremiah. We have also something that might be in the background of this is the test of jealousy in Numbers chapter 5, where again, there's an act of writing and there's a drinking that brings judgment upon the party that's proven unfaithful. Yeah, and the other thing that I thought of in that connection was um, the prohibition of uh, in Leviticus of priests drinking wine in the sanctuary. And that's relevant here, I think, because whether he realizes what he's doing or not, Belshazzar basically sets up the house of God within his within his palace. <laughs> he brings out the temple vessels. Uh, the lampstand is specifically mentioned there. The lampstand is lit, and uh, then I think Daniel eventually comes into the into the scene, and he's been described as one in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. That's that description is given in verse eleven. So it, it's 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 if Belshazzar has set up set up a, a, a small a small scale temple and then the spirit of God comes in in the person of Daniel. Daniel is the spirit bearer. And it's like that glory, the spirit glory is filling this temple scene. And then in that setting, especially, there's an, an act of an act of defiance and and also an, an act of arrogance for Belshazzar and his nobles to drink wine in the presence of these holy vessels. The priests aren't allowed to do that because they're not allowed to enter into that kind of Sabbath rest. The wine, the wine that's used in this in the Levitical rites, are, is wine that's poured out for Yahweh. He's the king. He's the one who's entered into his Sabbath rest. Uh, and Belshazzar, again, thinking that Babylon is impregnable. You know, the, the description of Babylon and Isaiah uh, were lifted up, and nothing, uh, nothing can harm us. I don't remember the exact wording, but I think it's Isaiah fourteen that talks about this. Uh, but that's you know, I'm enthroned. I'm at rest. Uh, I'm impregnable. Uh, there's nothing that's going to happen, but he's doing that in this kind of temple setting where God alone is supposed to relieve the to receive the wine. Yeah, that's a that's a good point, and it's facilitated a little bit by the fact that in Aramaic or in Hebrew, for that matter, the same 
word can be used to describe a palace or a temple. Mm. So the, the wordplay goes very, very well with it. Yeah, right. We've already seen the Chekhov's gun of the um, vessels from the temple. Um, there also is the reminder of the food test that Daniel and his friends passed in chapter one, where they refused to drink of the wine of the king. And now there's another sort of food test um, with the king's drinking of wine to judgment upon himself. And of course, there again, there's the, there's the idolatry and the blasphemy of mixing these vessels that are taken from the house of God that's in Jerusalem, the holy God, as he's identified later on, uh, and then mixing them in with the vessels and, and the worship of other gods. Verse 4, they don't drink wine and praise Yahweh, the God of, the God of Israel, whose vessels they're using. Uh, they're praising these gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Uh, that, that's, uh, that list of materials in verse 4 was one of the connections I suggested with uh, earlier, earlier chapters. It goes that at least partially the list corresponds to the, the materials that are made up that make up the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And uh, James, you, you've written on this and have found some connections between the two, between those two lists of metals. Um, have I? <laughs> <laughs> you have indeed. What, what, what connection did I find, Peter? Well, I think, I think you were, one of the things you mentioned, one of the things you pointed out um, to remind you, James, which I'm, I, I know that you already know this, but I'm, just, uh, just for your uh, recollection, uh, you point out that uh, the obviously these are idols that are given these descript- given these uh, made of these materials. In the previous in the previous chapter, is not this is not an idol. This is a one of the options that we discussed was uh, thinking of those materials as the materials of the temple and the imperial system that begins with Nebuchadnezzar and goes through the time of the Roman Empire is kind of a a protective a protective imperial structure for. For Israel now we have the same materials that are being used to describe these idols. Uh, there's a there's a second list uh, somewhere in the chapter where the the gold and the silver are shifted. They're put in different order, and I'm not finding the verse. Uh, yeah, uh, in verse 23, when Daniel talks, when Daniel rebukes Belshazzar, he lists off those same materials, uh, but he puts silver first: silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Which uh, you, as you'll remember, James. Uh, you suggest is a again a reference back to that uh, that dream in chapter two. Chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar Babylon is the head of gold, and then Persia is the next silver empire that's coming. But Daniel already anticipates the triumph of Persia, the ascendance of Persia by by listing the materials in that with the, in in the order with silver first and then gold afterwards. It's it's already even before he interprets the inscription. It's a sign that the uh, it's a sign that the Persians are going to uh, take precedence over Babylon. That's what you said. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I, I, I had forgotten. Um, part of the reason I'd forgotten was because as I was just looking over this, like sort of previous to our podcast, I was struck by this sort of structure that we have, which we have elsewhere of Daniel as, as kind of four hierarchies where you have layers of one, two, four and ten so if you think about the um kingdoms generally in chapter two you have this united babylon and then a two-armed um 
Persian successor, and finally, sort of something with ten toes at, mm. at the bottom of, of the Colossus, and that's more explicit in Chapter Seven, where you go from the um, lion stroke eagle and ultimately man to this bear, which is said to be raised up on on one side, and so you get this sort of imbalanced Medo-Persian empire, and then a four-winged leopard and a ten-horned beast at, at the end. And you get some allusions to that elsewhere. We noted one, I think, in Chapter 3, where at the ceremony you have uh, a guy at the head, the herald, and then two instruments with Semitic roots, and then four Greek instruments beneath them. And I think you've got something similar at the start here. So you have Belshazzar at the head of this uh, ceremony in verses um, 1 and 2. He then takes vessels of gold and silver, it said, from um, the temple. So you have a, a group of two. Um, and then they're brought out to the kings and lords and wives and concubines. So you have a group of four underneath. And then finally, in verse three, you get a group of four spliced together with a group of six. So the same lords, wives, concubines, um, and and king are said to drink from the vessels uh, and praise the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And so this sort of, yeah, one, two, four, ten hierarchy mm-hmm. seems to make its way kind of throughout the, the, uh, the whole of Daniel, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, some crop up later on as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that, and that's all going back. The root of that is back in chapter two with the statue. So that's kind of that's kind of in right. shadowy in the background of these other these other events. And I think one, one of the things you one of the other things you pointed out the, about that about that list is that this structure is falling. I mean, that's in Daniel two. It's the entire structure that collapses at once with the stone. Uh, but here we do have the the fall of the head of gold that's happening in this chapter. So that uh, is the first phase of the collapse of that imperial structure. But it, yeah, it's reinforced by the fact that you have this numerical this numerical thing in the in the background. And I think the other thing that that kind of links with that is the way that Belshazzar reacts when the verse five talks about the fingers of a man's hand appear and uh, on the wall opposite the lampstand. The lampstand is shining up on the wall. Uh, and it writes out an inscription on the wall, and then the king's this, the king's reaction to that, his face grows pale, his thoughts alarmed him. His my NASB says his hip joints went slack. We'll we'll have to come back to that. Uh, and then his knees begin knocking together. So you have this collapse of the king in person, from head down to his knees. So you again have a picture of that, uh, or some kind of something that's analogous to that statue and it's it's falling falling to pieces so you have that uh, you have both of those uh, you have the gods who are listed with the materials and then you have the king himself that is falling to pieces right i, I think that one of the reasons why that descent in verse 6 kind of down the king's body is often not so obvious to us is that we perhaps associate thoughts with the head more than people would have uh, at the time of writing so when you read about the king's face and then his thoughts it's i guess Mm. not so much seen as a descent but if you associate the thoughts more with the heart which as i understand it would have been far more um common to do in in ancient times then you obviously have the king's face draining in in color then the thoughts of his heart um and then the loins and then the knees and, and the idea of descent is uh is clearer 
We do want to talk, as I said, about the hip joints, because that's not actually what the verse says. It says his knots were loosed. And it's the same phrase that's used later to describe Daniel's wisdom. He has, verse 12, he has an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and he's able to untie knots. He's able to loosen knots. So there it's referring to uh, riddles, knotty intellectual problems that Daniel's able to untie, and he proves that he's able to do that by interpreting the inscription that's been written on the wall. Uh, but um, Al Walters, in, in an article published uh, 25 or 30 years ago, defends the uh, defends the interpretation of this as uh, the the loosening of his um, uh, of his the knots of his intestines and the knots of his bladder. So the king sees this; his his face grows pale. The thoughts of his heart heart alarm him, and then he shits his pants and pisses in his pants, and then his knees began knocking together. That's that would be a I think a that's a, that's taking some liberties, I suppose. We want to say knots are loosed because it picks up with the other use of the phrase, but that's what's happening to him. He's being he's being frightened um, shitless, as we say, which is just what Isaiah said was going to happen when Cyrus shows up in uh, Isaiah chapters forty four and forty five. Isaiah is explicit, explicitly named in the beginning of chapter forty five. The Lord says to Cyrus, "Is anointed to him, taking it through right hand to subdue nations before him." And to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him, so that gates will not be shut. So uh, Cyrus is um, is Isaiah has already predicted that Cyrus is going to have this effect on the kings that he conquers. And we and James, I, th- I think that in one of the things I've read that you have written on this, you you make the claim that uh, you think Isaiah is actually predicting the events of this evening with Belshazzar. Belshazzar is the specific one whose loins are loosed, whose knots are loosed by Cyrus. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, the um, the opening of doors, which is referred to in Isaiah forty five, is is interesting because doors there has a, a dual form, and so it's the it's the kind of thing that you do with body parts. You know, hands would be yadaim, or, or um, loins would be uh, matnaim, um, and and so that that dual form kind of suggests that you're you're yeah referring to a body part and and then looking at doors in in that light i think you can um you can get there you've also got some interesting things towards the end of um chapter 44 to do with the um uh the drying up of rivers and things like that and uh frustrating the signs um and making uh fools out of babylon's diviners um uh which which is quite interesting Historically, um, Cyrus is said to have infiltrated Babylon by kind of letting a fair bit of water out of a um, uh, out of a moat or, or something of that, a water channel of some description, in order that he could sort of get through Babylon's gates. Mm-hmm. And so, this might be picking up on on the memory of that. Yeah, we've remarked upon the background of the story of Babel on several occasions occasions in studying the book of Daniel. And it seems, again, you have a a language miracle or a source of confusion here. And throughout the book of Daniel, perhaps one of the themes that holds the book together more than anything else is the a crisis of interpretation. So we see it in relationship to the earlier dreams of Nebuchadnezzar. You see it here in relationship to the writing on the wall. Later on, 
Daniel's visions cause him distress. He's trying to understand what they mean. And perhaps more than any other book in the scriptures, this book of Daniel plays with terms such as understand or interpret. And here again, they're coming to the foreground. There's the crisis of the Lord's confusing of people and confusing of languages. The terms are not immediately obvious what they mean. And even then, they're playing upon words and um, mixing things up and forcing people to think about multiple meanings. And the fundamental means by which human beings organize and understand their reality, language, is being rendered ineffectual in some sense, or um, it's becoming a means of judgment against them. Yeah, and in that light, it's interesting that uh, when uh, yeah you say that that comes up uh, a number of times in the early chapters, uh, but it's the it's the Jewish figures, it's it's Daniel in particular, who's able to un- untie the knots and to interpret those things. So Babylon by itself is a, is a place of confusion, without the Jews there to dispel the confusion. Mm. Yeah. Something we might like to think about is the way in which Babylon seems to function here almost as a kind of microcosm of, of the world at large. If you think of the general picture of empire's decline in the book of Daniel, you kind of had this idea, again, going back to the Colossus of something unified, which slowly sort of splinters up. And then a very ungodly king who um, speaks proud words, I'm thinking of chapter seven particularly and and onwards, um, arises, who seems to bring down God's wrath on the whole structure um, due to his his boasting and his ungodliness and and so on. And um, that's obviously a picture of a whole age in chapters two and seven. But something which James Jordan's commentary emphasises is the way in which we can see sort of smaller patterns of that. And that does seem to happen if you just think of Babylon. As Daniel um, emerges into the story, there is this division that we see between the wise men and the king and then between the wise men, uh, or sorry, between the Chaldeans and the Jews in chapter um, three. So cracks start to emerge. And then we have this ungodly figure Belshazzar who who is going to bring God's wrath down on on the um on the palace and and so it does feel like something that goes on in Daniel is that kind of the decline of world systems as a whole are, are seen in this microcosmic way within Babylon mm. yeah. well, as Alistair mentioned uh, the the uh, crisis of interpretation that he mentioned comes up here in explicitly in chapter five. Once the fingers of the hand appear and write on the wall, then the king obviously will bring in his conjurers, his Chaldeans, and his diviners, as Nebuchadnezzar always did when he had trouble understanding something. Uh, and, uh, of course, again, despite their the encouragement of a, a promised reward, uh, they once again fail to interpret it. Uh, and uh, that, that makes uh, Belshazzar even more alarmed, even more frightened about what, uh, what this could mean. I think I think of what something you brought up a number of times in our podcast, James, about uh, part of part of the goal of interpretation is not just to understand it, but to kind of neutralize the effect of it. And if you have this inscription that's just there without being kind of mastered by an interpretation, then uh, it's it's even more frightening. So um, 
uh, Belshazzar is uh, is uh, desperate to have somebody take control of this word before it before it has some kind of uncanny effect. Yeah. Thinking back to Alistair's point, it said at the end of verse five that the king saw the hand as it wrote, and reminds me very much of Isaiah's statements of those who who see but don't understand or, or don't perceive, and that that seems to be very present here. Well, after Belshazzar has Belshazzar's wise men have failed to uh, interpret the inscription, the queen enters, and most commentators that I've looked at say, say that this is the queen mother, perhaps Belshazzar's mother, perhaps somebody else, but a, a higher, an older, and uh, an older member of the royal family. Uh, part of the reason for thinking that is that uh, the king and all his wives and his concubines are already there in his in the feast, and this queen is coming from outside. So she's not part of that uh, collection of wives and concubines that Belshazzar already has. And just her entrance into the banquet hall means that uh, there's a an kind of in, infusion of an older generation here. And we have a, we have a, uh, suddenly we have set up this, uh, this the theme of conflicting generation that's going to run through both her speech and into Daniel's speech. Uh, that's going to be a, a focus of attention, and and Belshazzar's failure to follow his his ancestor, his father's example, Nebuchadnezzar's example, and humble himself. Uh, his failure to uh, honor his honor his the memory of his of his ancestor by humbling before the Lord. Uh, that uh, but that that's introduced already by this uh, this queen entering, who's uh, coming from this older generation, and it, it, it her her speech reminds uh, me of. Uh, the setup, at least, of Rehoboam's, the beginning of Rehoboam's kingdom. After Solomon dies, some a delegation, Jeroboam leads a delegation to to request a relaxation of some of the some of the hard labor that Solomon had po- had imposed on the people. Uh, and Rehoboam consults two groups. He consults his uh, contemporaries who uh, encourage him to make it even harder for everybody, and then uh, he consults the older, wiser advisors that were advisors to Solomon. And had learned wisdom from Solomon, and they encourage him to speak kindly to the people and to relax to relax the burden to win their favor. Uh, so politically, it's not only a, a kind thing to do, but it's politically savvy for him to show favor at the beginning of his reign. And he chooses the the younger generation rather than the older generation. So you have the same kind of setup here, where Belshazzar is uh, his conjurers and, and diviners have failed. So what he's not done is consulted with the older, wiser wise man, Daniel, or with the queen for that matter. I wonder if there's significance to the fact that it's a female voice which brings wisdom into these proceedings. You've got a recipe for disaster, really, haven't you? You've got a foolish king and a crowd to whom he can perform and alcohol freely flowing. So, you know, it's not a good situation. And wisdom comes in the form of a female voice, which Reminds me of Proverbs in many ways. I wonder if there's something to that. I mean, so far in Daniel, that's that it's unprecedented, right? Um, we have do we have any women with speaking parts prior to this in in Daniel or anywhere else in Daniel? I don't think so. I think so. Yeah. So that that is um, definitely stands out. Um, not only the queen appears, but she has a fairly long speech uh, of. Uh, rebuke and, and advice to Belshazzar. If she's the queen mother, she probably has a particularly important role to play in supervising her son because her husband is still on the throne. 
Um, and so I imagine she would be one of the chief counselors in that situation. Mm -hmm. hmm. Right. The Queen's speech has a has this interesting kind of rhythm to it. Um, it's a it's a fairly repetitive speech. She talks about a man in your kingdom with the spirit of the holy gods, or the holy god is a, a preferable way to read that in verse eleven. Uh, and in your the days of your father, um, wisdom insight were found in him. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, she repeats, appointed him. There was an extraordinary spirit. So she says the same thing about Daniel three times. She hasn't named him yet. She's associated him with Nebuchadnezzar, which places him with that older generation uh, and also associates him with uh, the wisdom that comes from God. But it's only right at the end in verse 12 that she finally gets around to, to naming him. Uh, and to uh, that's just after she's, uh, she's described him as somebody in whom is an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, insight interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and loosening of knots. That's uh, the last thing she says about Daniel is, is capable of loosening knots, which may not come as good news to Belshazzar if our interpretation of that, the earlier use of the phrase is accurate. I've already had my knots loosed. I don't need somebody who loosens knots more. Uh, and then she names him Daniel, which is I think is, uh, Daniel's named Daniel seven times in the chapter. And, um, that's um, that, of course, is his is his given Hebrew name, not his uh, not his Babylonian name. When he appears in uh, uh, other chapters, it's often sometimes he's given the name Daniel, but it's immediately uh, juxtaposed to his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. But here, uh, the queen does that. She calls him Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, and then from that time on, he's called Daniel all the way through. So that might be partly about uh, an indication of the position that he now holds within Babylon. He's not part of the inner in crowd as he was during the days of Nebuchadnezzar. But I think it also highlights the fact that he's uh, speaking as a member of the people, the exiles that came from Judah. He's speaking the word of the Lord, and uh, he's he's a he's a prophet of the Hebrews. I think that given the the use of the Hebrew name throughout is uh, is highlighting that. I wish you would consider that at this point. Daniel is probably in his early 80s or if he was taken into captivity, his mid-teens, he has probably been out of the king's service for a number of years by this point. Right, which is interesting because he starts serving Darius at, at the very least, doesn't he, in the, in the next chapter. And so he's not sort of completely out, out, out of, um, you know, past his his sell by date or anything, you know, he, he's able to do an incredible job. And so you wonder if his um, non-mention in here is as much an act of judgment of, as anything else, you know, that God has removed his kind of voice of correction, if, if you like, from Babylon's rule and, and is now just letting it deteriorate. What do you think of uh, um, Daniel's relationship to Belshazzar? Is, is – uh, the queen introducing Daniel to Belshazzar for the first time here, is she reminding him of something of a man that she, he already knew uh, and that he's just ignored or perhaps forgotten? Um, how, how should we? Yeah, I, I wondered about that. Yeah. I, I wondered about that. You, you get the phrase, don't you? The, the very first thing he says is, kind of, so you are that Daniel. And you wonder if it's like, 
oh, so you're the guy I've heard so much about or or, or something. I, I, I don't know. It's interesting he's referred to by the Queen Mother as Daniel, not just Belteshazzar. Mm-hmm. Mm. One layer of that naming, of course, is the the meaning of Dan- Danel, which is um, God judges or something along those lines, uh, um, which uh, fits certainly with this with this chapter. He's the he's the uh, one who announces the judgment uh, and almost seems to be an agent of judgment in some ways. But um, the original meaning of the name Daniel is is uh, part of the mix here. Some third party coming to tell the king about some figure that's been forgotten, who will receive an a reward of being elevated to high status should instantly remind us of the story of Joseph and um, the cupbearer, the way that he speaks for Joseph at that point when the king, um, when Pharaoh has his dreams. And it seems somehow parallel to the beginning of Exodus too, where you have a king arise in Egypt who does not remember Joseph. Here we have Belshazzar, a king in Babylon, who either doesn't remember Daniel, or uh, is trying to trying to suppress the memory of Daniel. I mean, uh, go back to your comment, James, about uh, verse thirteen. Daniel's brought before the king, and uh, Belshazzar says, "Are you that Daniel?" Uh, which may be that uh, he had heard about Daniel, but had not identified this particular man with Daniel. Uh, but he does. At least he, he's, he, he doesn't just know the name. He knows something about Daniel's past. He knows that he's from the exiles of Judah. He knows that Nebuchadnezzar brought him from Judah. And then he's, uh, verse 14, he says, I've heard about you. And uh, then he kind of repeats what the queen has just said. But he knows more than, than the queen has informed him about. So there's some knowledge of Daniel in the background. And it, it, seems, it seems hard to... I suppose, given that I don't know how much time had passed since the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign until the, this moment that we're talking about, I don't know how many, I mean, we're talking about a couple of decades, I don't, I don't know the chronology, uh, but with Daniel's prominence in Nebuchadnezzar's reign, it seems uh, unlikely to me that Belshazzar could never have, never knew anything about him and had never seen him or met him. Um, at least on some, some commentators suggest that his, uh, his opening statement to Daniel is kind of dismissive and belittling. Oh, you're that Daniel. Uh, you're one of the exiles. You're the son of, you're a son of the exile. Uh, me, I'm the son of the king, uh, is implied. My father, the king, uh, had power over you and your people. You're, you're basically an ensla- a part of an enslaved nation. Uh, even verse 14, where he talks about the spirit of the gods is in Daniel, illumination, insight, extraordinary wisdom found in him. That's all stated in terms of rumor. You know, I've heard that about you. It's not like uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, at several points in the earlier chapters, Nebuchadnezzar will confess that the God of Daniel is a great God and that he's given Daniel wisdom. This is, um, um, Belshazzar is just speaking about in terms of uh, what what he's heard about Daniel. Almost, uh, one commentator suggests, it's almost a statement of challenge. You know, I've heard about you. Let's see if you can perform. Let's see if you can live up to your reputation, um, you son of the exile, something along those lines. And the fact that he's identified at this point, not in the Queen Mother's speech, but in um, the um, King's speech, it as one of the Judean exiles, um, I 
suppose that he would have known that the um, vessels that they were drinking from were from the temple in, in Judah. And so maybe at this point he feels something of that particular connection, that he is one of the people who was brought with the um, the temple vessels that they're drinking from at this point. Something to bear in mind might be just the extent to which people were recognisable by their appearance in more ancient times. I mean, these days, people who are well known, we know their faces very well, and so we're able to instantly recognise them. But I would guess that would be much less the case the, the further you go back in time. And so, um, like I think you were suggesting, Peter, you know, maybe he'd seen Daniel and maybe he'd heard of the kind of guy he was, but never put the two together. And so that could be one of the realisations that's going on here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that I mean one of the ways you could identify somebody, of course, in the ancient world was by you had uh, mark uh, clothing markers, sartorial markers that would uh, indicate somebody who's of a high position. If Daniel was once in a high position in the court and now he's no longer, then uh, he's you know perhaps beneath notice of uh, the prince. He's he's just a commoner. He no longer bears the uh, the marks of his marks of an office. It's worth noting, isn't it, that the offer to Daniel of the third position in the kingdom goes very well with the idea that Belshazzar is himself not the um, not the chief guy. You know, so he's second in command, as it were, and so third is the highest that he can offer. Um, by way of contrast, you know, someone who is at the top of the tree could, um, yeah, could make Daniel sort of second in command. Um, as as he's done to Joseph, um, he's kind of second beside Pharaoh, but. Here we've got a different situation. We'll continue the continue the story in the next uh, podcast episode. But uh, just one last question to think about uh, in this episode, uh, verse seventeen. You have Daniel's initial response to the king, which is dismissive, blunt. Uh, Keep your gifts for yourself. Give your rewards to someone else. I will read the inscription uh, and interpret it, but I'm not going to receive your reward. So. How do you take that? What's the what is Daniel's motivation for refusing those awards? He hasn't refused elevation in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. So is it Belshazzar who's the is the problem? Is it a kind of calculation that uh, Belshazzar's uh, rewards don't aren't going to mean much <laughs> because uh, he's got a few hours to rule? Um, how, how how do you understand that uh, response that Daniel gives? I imagine there would be a few reasons first of all if he doesn't receive them then he can he's speaking with complete candor he's not seeking gain for himself or flattering the king um if he's an elderly man at this point he's probably not in a position to exercise the authority even if he was even if the kingdom was going to endure and then of course the kingdom is going to be brought down so um it would be a bit of a poison chalice anyway, if he was associated with the outgoing regime at this point, um, he would just end up being caught up in the overthrow. Hmm. Was it, you, you think it could have even kind of uh, helped his adoption into Darius's structure in the next chapter, Alastair? Yes, most probably. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, we see a number of examples, for instance, in the story of Jeremiah of people who um, were out of favor with a former 
regime. And when that regime was taken over, they enjoyed protections um, precisely because they had spoken against the former regime. Right, right. Yeah, that's a good point. Something that strikes me as interesting about the presence of the temple vessels here is that, and sorry, Peter, this is going slightly away from your question, but is the way in which in Jeremiah's day, um, there were false prophets saying, soon we'll get the temple vessels back, you know, and everything will be well. And Jeremiah says to them, you know, the opposite will be the case. The Babylonians will come here and and take even more vessels away to Babylon. And that will be the test that you guys are, are false prophets, that all the vessels will go. And so the very presence of all these temple vessels, which Belshazzar brings out on, on stage, as it were, seems to be a, a sort of visible testimony to the truth of God's word. You know, the, this was the um, test that uh, Jeremiah gave, I guess, that if God's word is, is true, all of the vessels will end up um, in Babylon. And uh, that seems significant because, as Alistair pointed out, I, I think that image that Jeremiah gives of the cup of wine going round to the nations and then finally being drunk by um, Babylon uh, and by the Babylonians, um, that's uh, brought together in Jeremiah with the end of Babylon's 70 years and with their downfall. So it feels very much that the stage is being set by the Babylonians themselves. Um, you know, Belshazzar brings out the vessels. He then brings in um, Daniel, who, as you say, Peter, his name is associated with um, uh, God's judgment. And so all this is just completely self-inflicted, isn't it? It's a very poignant description of, of God's judgment of a nation. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.